Um, we are back in the Gospel of Mark, 2022. Here we go. Um, it's been a few weeks. We took a break from Advent, but we are continuing on through the Gospel of Mark. And today I will be preaching from Mark chapter 9. So turn in your Bibles with me there, um, or your phones. Um, the text is also in the bulletin. It's on the screens behind me. Lots of ways to follow along in the Word of the Lord. And as you're turning there, um, I'm going to be preaching from Mark 9, 30 through 50. And as you're turning, um, just wanted to give a little bit of context of where we are in the narrative since it's been a few weeks. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. This is the last time in the Gospel of Mark that the regions of Galilee and Capernaum are mentioned before the crucifixion. Earlier in Mark 9, Jesus went up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and he was transfigured there. Moses and Elijah appeared. Then they came back down the mountain, and Jesus healed a demon-possessed boy, something that his disciples were not able to do. And then we get this passage. Immediately following that, Jesus, uh, for the second time, he will again, in chapter 10, tell his disciples about what is uh, on the road before them in Jerusalem, that he will die that he will be killed, and that he will rise on the third day. But they don't get it. You think, after a couple times, those especially close, John, Peter, James, they would get it, but they don't. And Jesus gets very practical in this passage. He sits down to teach his disciples, and he teaches them about the significance of the cross in their lives. So if you are sitting here today wondering, well, what is the cross of Jesus have to do with me today. This is a passage for you. Um, so let me read the word of the Lord now from Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 50. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. And he was saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he would be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking them in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For one who does a mighty work in my name will not soon afterward be able to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone 
or hung around his neck, and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go into hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is God's word. Let me pray and ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we come to you, needy, sinful, broken people. We need your grace. We need your help. I need your help. Um, Holy Spirit, I ask you to do in our midst here today what, what we cannot, what I cannot do. We ask you to set our eyes on Jesus, that uh, we would see not just our sin more clearly, but we would see our Savior more clearly as well, and that our hearts would delight in him. And in his name I pray, amen. Uh, many of you by now are probably familiar with the Disney series, The Mandalorian. It's a Star Wars series, for those who aren't familiar, um, about a bounty hunter who lives his life according to a specific creed, a set of rules, so to speak, a code. And um, for example, one of the strange things that he does, or that he cannot do, he cannot show his face to anyone. Um, but whenever he's questioned about this creed, about his the way he lives his life, he responds every time with four simple words. He says, this is the way. This is the way. That's his explanation for everything, it seems. And I think that Jesus here in this, in this passage is teaching us, this is the way. If you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciples, this is how it goes. This is what it means to be in the kingdom of God. In Mark 9, Jesus is teaching about what it means to follow him in the upside-down kingdom of God. And here in this passage, there's a lot of things, of course, we could focus on. Um, but I want to focus on a couple things specifically that Jesus teaches. He's teaching his disciples and he's teaching us today that um, to be a Christian means to follow Jesus in the way of the cross, in the way of humility and death, suffering, sacrifice, death to our ego, to our pride, and death to our sins as well. And this happens by looking to the cross, not just as a model to follow or as an example, but a gift, a gift to be received by faith. And when that happens, the cross will become a stronger a source of affection that captures our hearts humbles us, brings us low, and enables us to kill sin. This is the way of Jesus, the way of the cross. And the way of the cross, as I've said, is an upside-down way. It's the way of life for Christians that turns the values of the world on their heads. 
Here in this passage, we're going to see, we're going to look at two things that Jesus teaches. He teaches us first that up is down. And then he teaches us also that death is life. So those are your your two points if you're taking notes. Jesus teaches us first that in the kingdom of God, pride must be abandoned and service pursued. That sin must be killed and holiness and obedience pursued. And that these are done both not primarily by our own strength and effort, but by looking to the cross of Christ, by faith and relying on the strength of the Holy Spirit. So first, Jesus teaches us that up is down. That greatness is not power and significance. It's service, weakness, and insignificance. Look with me at verses 30 through 37. And as we, as we look there, I want to ask, what is Jesus trying to do? What's his goal, his purpose? Well, he's teaching his disciples. He's teaching his disciples. How do I know that? How do you know that? Verse 31, the end of verse 30, is so they're going through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. He's trying to stay hidden, for he was teaching his disciples. And he was teaching them specifically about his death and his resurrection Um, but they didn't get it. So he continues on, and he uses an object lesson, an illustration to teach them some more, like any good teacher. Uh, John even says to him, teacher, and calls him teacher. But in verse 33, it says, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. So here Jesus is trying to teach them about one of the greatest moments in history. And they're over here arguing about who's the greatest. And so he sits down and he calls them to him. This this, uh, is intentional. He's taking a position of instruction. Teachers and rabbis in that day would sit. They wouldn't necessarily always stand at a podium with a microphone like I am or stand in the front of a classroom with a whiteboard. They would sit and their, their students would gather around them. And so he sits down and the disciples gather. And he takes their argument about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and he turns it into a teaching moment about what greatness really is. And to illustrate greatness, he puts in front of them a child. Notice, I thought it was uh, significant that he didn't pick one of them to illustrate this. He picked a kid, someone who culturally back then was insignificant. Children were dependent, weak. They had to be cared for. Um, They weren't necessarily obsessed with and hold the place of of significance uh, like they do in our culture. Um, They symbolized relative weakness right? The disciples, see, thought greatness meant power, influence, significance. They wanted to be known. They wanted to be recognized, for their face to be on the billboards outside Jerusalem as people walked in. Jesus was doing something great, and they wanted part of the action and the notoriety. Jesus turns that upside down, and he says, actually, your desire for greatness is all wrong. Greatness is not what you think it is at all. It's service. It's weakness. It's dependence, vulnerability, 
Greatness is giving up your life for others, not forcing them to give up theirs for you. And this greatness that he was trying to teach them is something he modeled to his disciples. Later on in in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus will say, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And ultimately, Jesus' greatness was modeled and pictured on the cross when he would give up his life. This interaction between Jesus and the disciples depicts what Martin Luther calls the theology of glory versus the theology of the cross. And he writes this, It does no good to recognize God in divine glory and majesty unless one recognizes God in the humility and shame of the cross. This is clear. He does not know Christ who does not know God hidden in suffering. Therefore, he prefers works to suffering, glow to the cross, strength to weakness, wisdom to folly. These are the people whom the apostle calls enemies of the cross of Christ, for they hate the cross and suffering and love works and the glory of works. God can be found only in suffering and the cross. So you see, the disciples here in this moment were, were being theologians of glory. They wanted all the fame, all the good stuff without the suffering. They wanted to avoid suffering and shame and weakness. And we do the same thing. Who are we to point a finger at them? America, especially affluent societies like we live in and over the mountain Birmingham, are preoccupied with greatness. We value success, security, and independence. We want greatness without suffering. We want glory without service. We want our name to be known, but we don't care about the names of other people who helped us get there. We want, uh, I think in our, in our culture, social media has just amplified this and made it more prominent because uh, it's a very human, fallen, broken human thing. We all want the, uh, the verified account blue check mark on our Instagram account. We want lots of followers and lots of likes. We want to be known and recognized when we go around town This preoccupation with greatness also makes it into the way we talk. There's a a popular acronym, someone's the GOAT, if you're not familiar with sense, for greatest of all time. Um, Everybody wants to be the GOAT, right? Oh, so-and-so is the GOAT, Uh, LeBron James or Michael Jordan, right, whoever. Uh, And we want it too. We want greatness. I wonder how many of our own, my own, because I'm preaching to myself today too, uh, how many of our New Year's resolutions and goals for the year ahead are in pursuit of our own greatness and not kingdom greatness? How can we value instead sacrifice and service like greatness? How can those values become a part of our life on Thursday afternoon You see, our ideals of greatness must be abandoned and turned upside down. So we can ask simply, how can we cultivate service in our daily life? When we walk out these doors today, how can we become more comfortable with weakness 
rather than strength, with sacrifice rather than glory, might look like not having to be right all the time, fill in the blank, lots of ways, in our marriages, in our jobs, in our school, on social media, in our parenting, in our friendships, how can we value service over glory and greatness? Because in the kingdom of God, up is down. But not only that, secondly, Jesus teaches us that death is life. In the second half of this passage, Jesus says some hard things. He moves from talking about pride, humility, and greatness to warning his disciples about that very pride and how it can have an effect on your heart and the effect on others. He warns them about the severity and the seriousness of those very sins and sin in general, the severity of causing others to sin and the severity, the deadly nature of harboring sin in our own hearts. And Jesus says, uh, he kind of, his argument turns a little bit in verse 42, look there with me. Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. When Jesus says, uh, uses this phrase, one of these little ones, he's not just talking about children, although they, they could be included. He's talking about believers in general. He says, uh, one of those who believes in me. Um, anyone who follows Christ, I think, would fit in this category. Uh, in this context, it might be like the man who uh, John and the other disciples try to stop casting out demons, even though he belonged to Christ. Um, and he continues, not, even, not only just causing others to sin, but ourselves too. He says, if your hand, in verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Luke records the same passage in his gospel, chapter 17, and he, he uh, includes a few more direct words from Jesus to his disciples. In Luke 17, too, Jesus says to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So pay attention to yourselves. We have to take a long, serious look at sin, sins which we very flippantly cast off so often. Jesus warns his disciples about how deadly sin can be and calls for radical, costly repentance. He's not speaking literally. I think when he tells you to cut off your hand and your foot and your eye, uh, he's drawing a very strong metaphor uh, to warn us about the deadly effects of sin that goes unrepented. Sins that we commit, real sins, not just abstract, up-in-the-air ideas of sin, but real sins that we commit with our right hands and our feet and our eyes. Uh, And he's saying that it's better to do what it takes to kill sin in your life than to let it remain because it has an effect on you, it has an effect on your heart, and it has an effect on those around you. Jesus is teaching here that sin is not neutral although sin would have us believe otherwise. Its desire is to devour us, to kill, to steal, to destroy. 
to do the opposite of what God comes to do. In Genesis 4, God warns Cain about his anger, and he depicts sin. He talks about this uh, uh, predatory nature of sin. He he puts it in terms of, of a predator that's crouched, ready to pounce on its prey. God says to Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is against you, and you must rule over it. Or the the writer of Hebrews puts the warning this way, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, sin wants to hide, and if left unchecked, unrepented, and allowed to gain a hold in our hearts, we will slowly slip, and it says to us, it's not that bad, and before we know it, we're stuck, lost in addiction and deadly cycles. It wants to deceive us, and so we must cut it off. That's what Jesus is getting at. He's getting at what is your stance toward your sin? Do you think it's a cute little toy you can keep in your pocket, or do you think it's a disease that is going to kill you? Just like a doctor, this is the image Jesus uses, just like a doctor must sometimes amputate a diseased part of the body to save a person's life, we must take such a stance against sin in our own lives. The Puritan John Owen talks of this as the mortification of sin. That's Puritan speak for killing sin. And he says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. It is not neutral. But I realize this is uh, a hard thing to do. This is much easier said than done. It's difficult, long, painful work. Jesus says, cut off your hand. Okay, well, it's hard to cut off a part of your own body. We will um, continue to deal with sin in our lives, real sin in our hearts, minds, and bodies until Christ returns. But there is grace. Where where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So we should neither forsake, however, on the other hand, we should not forsake progress. Just give up. We shouldn't just give up. However slow and gradual that progress might be, don't give up on obedience and seeking after holiness. We ought to repent of every sin we can think of and be specific. The Westminster Confession talks about repenting of particular sins particularly. Say that five times fast. We ought not to hold back every effort to kill sin, to cut it off in our hearts, in our lives. But Jesus himself recognizes that this is a difficult and painful task. Here in this very passage, he says, uh, he includes this little phrase, and he tags on to the end of his talk in verse 49, and I think this is the only time in the Gospels that this specific phrase is used here. He says, everyone will be salted with fire. What does that mean? Well, this is a reference to the sacrifices in the Old Testament. This isn't the fire of judgment any longer, like he was talking about earlier. This is the fire of purification, uh, Leviticus chapter 2.13 mentions this, that every offering that the Israelites brought to God must be salted with fire. They had to include salt in it when it was burnt. Uh, and the salt was called the salt of the covenant. It was a symbol of the covenant and the bond that God had made with his people, a reminder that they were his 
people. And what I think Jesus is saying here is that uh, a life of radical, costly repentance will come with sacrifices, and it will be hard. It will be painful sometimes to repent of sin, but it will be worth it. The sacrifices made and the efforts of rooting out and killing sin in our lives, in this life, are worth it. When we get to heaven and the new heaven and the new earth and see Jesus face to face, we won't regret any effort that we took to kill sin today, as extreme as it might seem to us now. But why? Why is it so hard to kill sin, to cut it off like Jesus talks about? It's difficult. Well, it's because we love sin so much. The power of sin is that it just doesn't just live in our hands, in our feet, in our eyes. That would be easy to solve. It's wrapped up in what we love, lives in our hearts. We have these, all of us have these beloved sins that we carry around, that we cherish. And so it is really hard and painful when Christ places his call on our lives. And sometimes even for the Christian, these things persist and we wrestle with them all of our lives until he returns. But it's difficult. It reminds me of Augustine, when he writes uh, of his younger days as a Christian in in his confessions, he says, he's praying to God, and he says, when I prayed to you for chastity, and I said, grant me chastity, but not yet. I was afraid you might hear my prayer quickly and that you might too rapidly heal me of the disease of lust which I preferred to satisfy rather than to suppress. And we do the same things. We have these things which we want to satisfy rather than suppress. We pray to God, give me purity, give me holiness, give me fill in the blank, but not yet. Now you may be sitting here thinking of that particular sin that you've, and you say, I've tried. For years I've tried to cut it off but it keeps growing back. You hear these words from Jesus in the gospel and you think, yes, Jesus, I agree, but it's easier said than done because I've tried and no matter how hard I try, how often I repent, how sorry I feel, how guilty I feel, how many tears I shed, no matter how many safeguards I put up, no matter how many accountability partners I have, how much I confess it, In worship on Sunday morning, this sin will not go away. So many of these words from Jesus are just a reminder of our failure to do what he says. So how? How do we do what Jesus commands us to do when our own efforts fail us? Where does the power and the ability come from? If sin lives so deeply in our hearts, and affects what we love, how can we hope to cut out our own hearts and affections? Well, it's not from ourselves. It's not merely us, but it is Christ in us. You can try. You can put your sheer willpower to the test this year. You can make as many New Year resolutions as you want to get over this sin, to cut it out from your life, but without one thing, that will not happen. I can guarantee you, you will exhaust yourself and wear yourself out. You can think about how bad that sin is. You can argue, argue yourself against it and make yourself feel guilty until Jesus comes back. But without one thing, 
you will always return to a cycle of sin and addiction. Well, what makes the difference? If the problem is that we love sin so much, how do we take away that love? With a greater love. With a greater love. With the love of God. If sin looks so lovely to us, we need something more beautiful to look at. You see, our love of sin cannot just be simply cut off by sheer determination. You can't cut sin off without something else to take its place, something greater to take its place in our hearts. If you want to kill, cut sin off to kill it, you cannot hope to do so just by focusing on how bad that sin is. You must focus on how beautiful and good and lovely Jesus is. Focus on how good the gospel is, that God's grace, God's abundant, rich, never failing, never giving up, always coming after you grace, is for you, not just for the person next to you. And where do we see this grace, love, and power? At the cross. That's what Jesus was trying to teach us. That the cross isn't just a model, an example for us to live our sacrificial lives, but it's a gift, first and foremost, to be received by faith. The cross is the gift that has the power to change your heart, to reorient and reorder your love. So if you want to be rid of those sins that won't go away, look to Jesus, not to yourself. Gaze upon the beauty of God displayed in sacrificial suffering because of your sin and on your behalf. Look to the Son of God on the cross who was cut off for you. Or he did not merely lose a hand, a foot, or an eye, but who was beaten, mocked, and killed in your place for those sins that you commit with your hand and your foot and your eye. He went through more pain and suffering in this world than we ever will or could, or that more pain than he would ever call us to. He has suffered more. Look to God, behold God, who not only died for you, as good news as that is, but who was born and lived for you, the perfectly obedient and righteous one who gives you his righteousness by grace. Look to the one who never sinned, the true and better Adam, as we sang this morning, the true and better David, risen and ascended and seated on the right hand of God, the true and better Moses, who is right now interceding for you, pleading his life for your own, the one who entered the depths of hell and death, drinking up your sins to the very bottom so that they could never rise to accuse you again. And look to the one who pours out his spirit upon us so that we will never know a day without the presence and fellowship of God with us. Behold this God. Fill your hearts and your mind with Christ. Gaze at his love and his beauty. Delight in the riches of heaven and let your beloved sins fall away. It probably won't all happen at once, let's be real. But slowly and surely, as we strengthen and fix our gaze on Jesus, it will become easier and easier to turn from sin and turn to Christ, who is truly better than we think he is.
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your good grace, your grace that never gives up, your grace that gives us power. I pray that you would set our minds, our hearts on Jesus, on his beauty, and that we would forsake more and more every day until you come back uh, the beloved sins of our hearts, that we would look to Jesus, not to ourselves, that you would keep us until you return by the strength of your spirit. In the name of Christ, amen.